0: invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus chapter 17. Now as you're turning there, just... Uh I want to welcome Sam and uh, Milda Lukosius. I, I saw them in the foyer. Uh, just, Sam, is there you are. Good to see you, brother. Um, away, doing an internship this past summer and now back to study at Pearton. It's so good to see you again and, and have you back here worshiping uh, with us. Uh, see some other friendly faces that I haven't seen for a while. It's great, uh, it's great to be together um, this morning with you. Let's, uh, let's give our attention to Leviticus 17. For those of you who uh, maybe have been out of the loop or haven't been here, uh, Leviticus is a It's a worship manual and a survival guide all at the same time. Um, God has called Israel to be his people, and God has come to live with them. This is uh, back, they've come out of Egypt, they were a slave people in Egypt, God brought them out by his own power. Uh, God has, uh, they're in the wilderness, and um, they're going to be there for a while because of their disobedience, Uh, and in that time, God's going to be training them what it means to be the people of God. Uh, they have their camp, it's large, there's probably 1 to 2 million people in the camp, and in the middle of the camp is the tabernacle, and in the, in the middle, in, in the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence is, uh, is dwelling there in the cloud above the Ark of the Covenant. And so God is with his people. It's sort of like Eden version 2 in some sense. The problem being of course that in the garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were there they were there without sin they were there without sin they could commune with God freely but now that sin has entered the picture God being a holy God and as we saw last week a consuming fire there are certain precautions that have to be made in the book of Leviticus as God teaching his people the truth about his holiness the truth about their sin and the reality the wonderful reality of his grace by giving them A whole list of laws relating to being clean and unclean, how to approach God. And today, uh, what to do with blood. And God highlighting the significance, the value of blood. And it's going to seem a little strange to us, but let's trust God has a word for us. Let's give our attention to Leviticus 17. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If anyone of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp, notice those are the three animals specifically that would be used for sacrifices, or, or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the peace shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore, this shall be a statue forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who, so- who sojourn among them, who offer a burnt offering or sacrifice, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. If any of the house of Israel or of the, in- of, uh, the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Any one of, also of the people of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood, and its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening, then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, we believe that your word is the word of God, and um, we thank you that you speak to us today by your word. And so give us ears to hear uh, the lesson, the message you have for us today today. From these, this text, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may have noticed that our text this morning is about a topic that many people find a bit squeamish, and that is the topic of blood. Uh, I know some people uh, who pass out at the sight of blood. Uh, I have to confess that whenever I go to have my blood drawn, I tend to look the other way. Um, there's nothing really I need to see there. Uh, I'm very thankful for my blood. Uh, I just figure it's one of those things, uh, the less I see of it, the better. The strange thing about Christianity, particularly if you're looking at Christianity from the outside in, one of the strange things you'll notice is that Christians talk a lot about blood. In fact, they seem fascinated by the topic of blood, the blood of Jesus. They even sing songs to it. Uh, and the truth is, we would have to confess that some of our very favorite songs our songs about the blood of Jesus. Uh, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. We sing that heartily. If, you are, uh, if you've never um, been part of the church, uh, that just sounds absolutely gruesome. Who in the world talks like that? about a fountain filled with blood and sinners being plunged beneath it, right, into it. I mean, it's just it's just crazy talk. Why are Christians so infatuated with the concept of the blood of Jesus? Well, here in Leviticus 17, uh, we find our answer. Um, God, as you remember, we've been going through the book of Leviticus, and God is speaking to His people about their need to be clean. Uh, and he's, in chapter 16, we had the Day of Atonement where there's once, once a year you would have this ceremony where the sins of Israel are atoned uh, as Aaron confesses the sins of Israel over the head of one goat and sends it away into the wilderness, signifying their sins are completely taken away and forgotten, never to be brought up again. And the other a goat is sacrificed, uh, paying the penalty for their sin. So that's Leviticus 16. Now in chapter 17, we're beginning a new section in the book, which scholars call the code of holiness. Uh, Now that the people of Israel have have had their sins forgiven, uh, their guilt washed away, now God calls them to live a holy life. And we'll see in the coming chapters how that relates to, in chapter 18, unlawful sexual relationships. God cares about our sexuality and our sex life and is going to speak to it. And then in 19, uh, loving our neighbor as uh, ourselves. What what does holiness look like in regards to our neighbors? Uh, Chapter 20, it's going to talk again about holiness uh, regarding sexual immorality, punishment for child sacrifice. It's going to be things that are very relevant for the people then and today. Well, here in chapter 17, uh, those holiness laws begin with an emphasis, with talking about some basic truths about where you sacrifice, what you do with the blood of animals that you kill. And in the middle of that, we're going to have this lesson, powerful lesson about uh, the significance of why God cares about this and why God cares uh, about the blood. There are five case laws in the chapter. You probably miss them as we're reading through. They, they are each introduced by the phrase, if anyone... And so you can track that, verses 3, verse 8, 10, 13, and then 15 says everyone. So let's just, we're going to look at those case laws uh, in order, but we'll take number three at the, at the end. So first, the law regarding killing a domesticated animal, an ox or a, uh, a lamb or a goat, verses 3 and 4. And the lesson is, uh, the, the rule, the command from the Lord is that you are not allowed to kill those animals. Um, out in the camp or outside the camp. The, uh, the point is that you have to bring, if you're going to kill a, a, an ox or lamb or goat, most scholars think for any reason at all, the text suggests that it's, that it's um, maybe particularly related, it's particularly related to sacrifices. You're not allowed to kill those animals anywhere in the camp or outside the camp. They must be killed in front of the tabernacle as God had commanded earlier on regarding the peace offering. So God is saying there's one divinely designated place for blood to be shed, for sacrifices to be made. And that place is at the tabernacle. You see already in the Old Testament, God's saying um, there is one way to have a relationship with me. There's one way to draw near. There's one way to come. There's not many different paths And here, um, God is telling his people, the blood must be shed in front of the tabernacle. Lethem writes this, if an Israelite wanted to eat meat, he must bring his chosen animal to the tabernacle as a peace offering. There, the priest would kill it in the approved way. He would sprinkle the blood and burn the fat on the altar. The person offering the animal would then receive back the flesh of the animal to eat. Um, This might seem burdensome. Just remember that meat was very seldom eaten in those days. It was simply too valuable, and there's no there's no way to preserve it um, in the camp. And so, when you would bring an an ox, it would be a peace offering, and a portion of it would go to the priest. The rest you would share with family and friends because the whole portion needs to be eaten um, according to the command of God. The the penalty for not doing this, for the penalty for not bringing your animal to the tabernacle to be, to, uh, to be slaughtered there, it's very, very strong. So uh, notice the text said, "Blood guilt shall be imputed to that man." In other words, the offense is deemed as serious as murder. It's very, very serious. He has shed blood," God says. He has shed blood. And the penalty, the punishment, is that he will be cut off from among his people. To be cut off in the Scripture means physical death. It may, some scholars think it might also mean eternal death. Now, you don't just die. You suffer the judgment of God forever. Either way, it's an extremely strong penalty, and, and it just raises the question, why? Why does God care where you kill your goat? Where you slaughter it. Why does that matter to him? Well, in verse 7, God tells us why it matters. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. We don't know much about goat demons. The, uh, uh, the best we can uh, make out is that the people believed that there were demons who lived in the wilderness. Remember, the wilderness is where no one lives. So It's, it's no man's land. And um, bad things happen in the wilderness. People die in the wilderness, mysteriously in the wilderness. There's evil in the wilderness. And and so uh, the, the the goat demon, it was believed that, go, that demons could, could take the form of a goat and cause harm. Well, there's, so it's, it's mystical, it's, it's mysterious, it doesn't, um, uh, it's hard for us maybe to engage that. But, but these are people who live in a world where they are convinced that spiritual realities control the, Whatever happens in your life, the circumstances of your life are defined by spiritual realities. And so the practice of the day was you make sacrifices to whatever spirit, be it a demon or a god, that you think can help you out. That's just how you make your way in the world. So you, and you're sort of, you play the field in this, right? You, you keep your options open. If uh, you try to placate whatever local gods or demons you think might be in play, and uh, you sacrifice to appease their anger and uh, to bless whatever you're trying to do. That's just how you live life. Until God shows up. And God sh- shows up to say, I am the Lord your God, and you shall have no other gods before me. You don't get to play the field. Uh, you, ne- you are called, as Israel, God's people, to trust God, to serve the Lord alone. You don't make sacrifices to any other person, any other god, or a demon. You trust the Lord. You see, the first rule of holiness, uh, much like the first rule of marriage, is covenant faithfulness, covenant fidelity. Israel has to come to understand that their God, unlike all the pagan nations around them, and the pagan gods, their God, the one who actually exists, the one to whom they must give give an account, the living God does not, will not tolerate divided loyalties. He's God. He's God. He's the God who rescued them. And He's the God who calls them then to live for Him. Exodus 22, verse 20. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Remember we said last week, when God makes threats like this. He's not playing games. He's not just trying to scare people. God means this. He's he's, he's very, very serious about this. This is what he's like. We don't get to just sort of make him up uh, according to our preferences. This is what he's like. He wants his people to understand The critical importance of covenant fidelity, covenant faithfulness. I am the Lord your God. You worship me and me alone. I remember back uh, when we lived in California during seminary and then for a couple years afterwards, uh, I had a friend back in in Chino. Uh, He worked at downtown L.A. in a a, a large um, advertising firm. Big, good-looking guy. Sort of a Marlboro man. Um, Just a, um, a big dude. And women would hit on him. Regularly, at work, downtown, wherever he is. And his response to them was only partly in jest. He would say, uh, I'm sorry, I don't want to die, and I assure you, my wife will kill me. And it was only partly in jest. Well, that's exactly how God wants Israel to think about sacrificing to other gods, and there's no jest in it. When he says, the Lord, whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction, well, that's what he means. He will not tolerate idolatry in the lives of his people, he will not let them be sacrificing uh, to uh, any other gods or demons but to God and God alone. Well, the second law expands on the first by uh, specifically mentioning a burnt offering. So if you're going to do a burnt offering, there again, it's burnt offerings are you're trying to atone, you're trying to appease, um, that belongs to God. So you do that at the tabernacle. And then it also expands it by saying um, foreigners are are not excluded. If you're living in the camp, well, you're you're living in God's house. And it doesn't matter where you're from, if you're in God's house, you're expected to obey house rules. And these are the house rules. And if you don't, the Lord, then once again, there's a, there's a warning that you will be cut off. Uh, the third rule, verses 10 and 12, deals specifically with eating blood. We're going to come back to that in a moment. The fourth rule is about hunting game, verses 13 and 14. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with the earth. So if you're out shooting deer... Uh, you don't you don't um, drink the blood. You don't eat meat with the blood. Some sort of uh, you know naturalistic pagan whatever ritual bloodthirst. You don't do that. Uh, if you shoot if you shoot an animal in the wild, uh, you drain its blood and you cover it with the earth. Now again, you might ask, well, why in, why does God care what you do with the blood of the animal you've just killed? Why does he he care? Well, the answer is given in verse 14. For the life of every creature is its blood, its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. You note a theme here. Three times it's been said. And whoever eats it shall be cut off. So the concern here is not specifically about sacrifice. No one's going to be sacrificing uh, an animal that they shot in the wild or some pheasant, but... It's re- the, the issue is the blood, the value of the blood, the significance of the blood. The, the blood, you see, is the life stated over and over in the text. The point, you see, is God calls His people to respect life and to respect, in, in, in a sense, also then death. That even the life of the animals in the wild matter. They belong to God. And that's really the point. In this world that's under the curse of death, life must be treated with the utmost respect that life came from god that life belongs to god and so though men are allowed to hunt and to take that life as they exercise dominion it cannot be done in a bloodthirsty manner for the pleasure the sheer pleasure of killing the That life matters. It belongs to God and must be returned to God, in a sense, by pouring the blood, which is the life, out on the ground, and you cover it. And it matters. You see, notice again the warning. Whoever eats the blood of a creature shall be cut off. This is not our world just to kind of kick our way around and do our thing as we choose. Uh, Environmental stewardship matters, this world is God's, and it belongs to God, and we're called to steward it, and, and, well, it matters to God. The life specifically matters, you see, to God. Sanctity of life belongs at the very heart of a Christian perspective of life. Well, then there's, uh, in verses 15 through 16, rules about dead wildlife. What happens if you come upon something that has been uh, killed in the wild, or do you just find it dead in the wild? Uh, many of us would, would sort of go, uh, we just kind of leave it alone. Well, um, if meat is a very valuable, precious thing, and uh, you come across an animal that, that's dead and it's edible, and they would, of course, know if it is or isn't, well, then you would take that. And and the Lord allows that. He, but, but notice, this, this rule just says, um, since the blood was not allowed to drain out properly, there's a ceremonial uncleanness that comes about and that you must then wash yourself and bathe Uh, both yourself and your clothes and be unclean until the evening. And again, it matters. If you don't, you bear your iniquity. Your sin is on your head. So those are the the laws that God has given. And now let's come back to verse 3, I mean rule 3, verses 10 through 12. So once again, we have a straightforward prohibition. Don't eat blood. And a very strong warning, if you do uh, I will set my face against the person who eats blood, and I will cut him off from the face of the earth. So, to have God set his face against you, there's, not, there's nothing farther, um, right? There's nothing worse than that. that, that that's on the, on the scale of good to bad. There's, there's nothing at the other end of God turning his face towards you, against you if God has turned his face against you, that is death in its essence. To live apart from God is death. To have God, the living God who controls all things, who created you, who simply needs to uh, remove his hand and you disappear, to have God against you, well, it doesn't get worse. And that's the warning that God gives to this, this command. Uh, you don't eat blood. If you do, I will set my face against that person, and I will cut him off from among the people. And once again, we have to ask the question, why? And the answer is given. Verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Well, here we, we have another, an added reason. Why does this matter to God? Well, it matters because um, not only is uh, life valuable to God, but, but the blood matters because blood is God's means of making atonement. That's what he says. The life is in the flesh. I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. That's why this matters to God. And the question then we want to ask is, well, how exactly does blood do that? How does blood atone? We know that it does. God promises that it does. Saw that in chapter 16, but how? What is it about the blood that makes it possible for God to forgive sin? And is it necessary at all? Well, let's first ask the first question. Why is it what is it about blood that makes atonement possible? And the answer is given, again, in the text. Notice, it is blood that makes atonement by the life. It's blood that makes atonement by the life. And here we have the the wonderful gospel doctrine of substitution, substitutionary atonement. I know it's a big word. It just means God accepts one life for another. Remember, biblical basic doctrine that Sin, which is rebellion against God, the holy God, sin deserves and requires death. Sin forfeits life. I know that people, again, scoff at that. I mean, we live in a world where people just think that's the silliest thing they've ever heard. Just because I'm sleeping with somebody that's not my husband or my wife, I I deserve to die. Just because I lie, just because I cheat, just because I steal, in little ways. I'm not not a big cheat. I'm not a big thief. Just because I have no care for God at all, just because I live my life on my terms, uh, you're right, the Bible's going to say that I deserve to die? Yes. Yes. And so do I and every other person in this room because sin is rebellion against a holy God who is a consuming fire. So that's the that's the fundamental truth. The soul that sins shall surely die. Every person who has committed sin then is under that sentence, under that judgment. But God has made a way for sinners like you and I to be rescued by the death of a substitute, someone dying in our place. So Kevin Young says, God's way of saving sinners has always been by a bloody atonement. The life of one is offered as a substitute for the life of another. And that's why the blood matters, you see. It's the act of a life being given. It's the act of a substitute bearing the guilt of another, suffering the penalty of another, and by that death, substitutionary a death, atoning for the other. And that, of course, is exactly the point of the cross. People can say very easily, if you ask them, um, what do you believe, why why do you believe you're saved? And they'll say, well, Jesus died for me on the cross. Praise God. But but what does that mean? How did that death affect your salvation? You see, anyone who seriously thinks about the cross has to ask the question, why is Jesus there? What is he doing there? What, What is he accomplishing there? Because we tend to think of Jesus, or maybe the natural man will think of Jesus on the cross, not accomplishing anything. He's just receiving a judgment, a penalty. He's just receiving the vitriol and hatred of the crowd. He's receiving death. Well, actually, Jesus is doing something there. And what he's doing, you see, is, is acting as a substitute. And so how, however you answer the question of the cross, what is he doing there? And there are many different answers given, many different theories about the cross. There's the moral influence theory, which says that God is just trying to show us how much he loves us. Uh, there's the, the governmental theory. There's the ransom theory, which says that a ransom is being paid to Satan. Well, that, it can't possibly be true. There's the um, the Christus Victor theory. So there's a variety of theories. But any theory about the cross that doesn't have substitutionary atonement at the middle of it, at the very center of it, it's not a biblical theory. You see, the whole gospel hangs on this. The, the, gospel, the Christian gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Offering his life on a cross as a substitute for us. Dying in our place. Bearing our guilt. Suffering the just sentence of death that we deserved. And thereby atoning for our sin. That's God's way of saving sinners. And it's a wonderful way. It's the only possible way. We couldn't atone for ourselves. Our good intentions, our best efforts, we can't atone, we can't, we can't wash away the guilt of things that we've done, we can't make ourselves right, but, but God can through Jesus. So John Stott says, we strongly reject, therefore, every explanation of the death of Christ that does not have at its center the principle of satisfaction through substitution. And Stott makes the point that it's divine self-satisfaction through divine self-substitution. God satisfying himself by substituting himself for us. Stout so makes a great point that sin is people substituting themselves for God. Sin says, I'm going to do it what I want to do. I'm going to act as though my life is completely mine. I don't owe, I don't owe anyone anything. All right? We just substitute ourselves for God. We're going to live for the glory of me. And salvation is God substituting himself for sinners. God taking the place, uh, coming to stand in our place to suffer the, the penalty that we deserve so that we might be forgiven. So the question then finally we want to ask is, what must we do to gain that atonement? Because you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. And there's one way and only one way to be made right with the living God that created you. So how, what do we need to do Well, that's the wonderful thing about the gospel. And notice the words in verse 11, uh, that this is a gift. So God says, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. God is the one doing the action, and God is the one offering the gift. So, so the life that, that is being brought now, so you take your bull, you take it to the tabernacle, and it's sacrificed. That bull belonged to God, not to you. The life of that bull belonged to God, not to you. And God is willing to receive that bull sacrificially in your place, pointing to something that was yet to come. But that was a gift that God gave as God was willing to make atonement for your sin through the life that was offered up. So the Israelites didn't do anything to earn it. They received it as a gift. They received it as an act of God's saving love for them. And friends, that is at the heart of the glory of the cross. See, the the cross is not just Jesus shedding his blood for our sin. The cross is God the Father giving us the life of His Son for our sin. The the, the cross is the miracle of, of God the Father loving us by giving us the life of His Son. So it's not just a story of a loving Jesus giving His His life to satisfy an angry God. You'll hear people ridicule the Christian gospel by saying, Here, you know, Christians are talking about this angry, wrathful God. This God who's mad. And the only way you can appease this angry God is as Jesus dies on the cross. That's just like every other pagan religion. Well, they're absolutely right. That is like every other pagan religion. That's just not the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel, you see, is not a story of a loving Jesus giving his life to satisfy an angry father. It's the story of a loving father giving his son to save sinners. You have to to envision or or, or, grasp the fact of of God, the maker of heaven and earth, offering you the gift of, Of the life of his son. Can you imagine offering the life of your children to anyone for anything? And yet, that's exactly the gospel message. And it's a real life, and it's a real death, and it's real judgment that he endured, real blood that he shed. The gift of God to the world, you see, is Jesus Christ, his son, as a substitutionary, atoning sacrifice for the sin of the world. John three sixteen God so loved the world he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In this, the love of God is made manifest, John will say in his first epistle, 1 John 4, that God sent his only son into the world. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to send his son who atones and turns away the wrath of divine justice. Not the wrath of the father. The father's offering him, but the father um, is a father of, of justice. And God, to placate his own justice Sends his own son because he loved us and gave Jesus for us. And that blood, friends, is the most objective, precious matter to to ever touch the ground, right? The blood of Jesus as it poured out. The blood is the life. And by that blood, by the death that it signifies, by that sacrifice, countless hosts of sinners were ransomed for God. By that sacrifice, the condemning power of the law was broken. By that sacrifice, we are set free from the law of sin and death. By that that sacrifice, we have everlasting life as a free gift, fully and freely and forever forgiven. By that blood, everything is being made new. That's the gospel message. We just need to receive it. One of the things that... um, the gospel does is it, it turns our expectations and the law's expectations in a sense on its head. So the law says the soul that sins shall surely die. The gospel says the, the soul that sins and believes in Jesus Christ shall live forever. Right? Sinners are declared righteous in the gospel. And, and, the, law, and, the, and the gospel does a similar sort of twist with this issue of eating blood. Now, um, remember what Jesus says to his disciples In John chapter 6, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is, is not, of course, encouraging us to drink his blood literally. He holds up the cup, the wine at the Last Supper and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink from it. What he's calling us to do, he's not inviting us to to eat his flesh, he's calling us to receive the gift, to receive it deeply, as deeply as when you eat or drink something, that you're not just a passerby, you're not just noticing, you're not just maybe reflecting or affirming but you see the objective reality of the gift of God in the Father, in love, offering, giving Jesus Christ His Son for the sins of the world. And you say, I want that. And I take that. I lay hold of that. I receive it as the evidence of God's love for me. As the, and in and, and, and receiving the gift of Jesus, I also receive the promise that comes with it that whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, shall be saved. Whoever eats and drinks has, right now, everlasting life. And Jesus says, I will raise him up in the last day. That's the gospel message. And that's the gospel invitation. You know, there are all sorts of people in the church who, who know the gospel, they've heard it, they could recite it back to you, but they've struggled to lay hold of it to grasp it, to receive it, to take that truth into the reality of their sin. Friend, Jesus calls you today to take the, the full gospel into the full reality of your sin so that you maybe for the first time can have the sense that you need have no fear when you stand before God on the last day. Not because he's a flippant, casual God who doesn't really care about sin, but because he is a consuming fire who consumed his son bearing your sin. So that you are free, forever free. And maybe you've never maybe you've never heard this message before. Friend, this is God's message to you today. You are here today, gone tomorrow, just like all the rest of us. And we will stand before the reality of God. And the wonderful gospel invitation is today, believe, receive the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Is that good news? That's good news. Let's receive it and then live out of it. What difference would it make in your life if you knew that God the Heavenly Father loved you to the core of your being and gave His Son to rescue you, to make you His very own? How could that change your marriage? How could that change the way you treat your kids? How could it change the way you view your possessions where you realize you were made for God, you're made for eternity? Think about it. Amen. Amen. Oh, Father in heaven, what, what love is this? That you would offer to me, a sinner, your son, to be my savior. That you would offer up the one who had never sinned, the very son of God, to shed his life as a sacrifice because you loved me and gave Jesus for me. Father, I just pray that that gospel truth would penetrate our hearts. That we would face the wonderful, precious blood of Jesus Christ and the love of the Father that gave it. In a way, Lord, that sets us free from our fear, sets us free from guilt and shame, sets us free to commune with you in full joy and peace, sets us free to love others to bear, to hope, to be at peace. And Father, I just pray that you would apply this word then to the heart of every person here, precisely, Lord, as they need to hear it, and that it would transform us for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing, <laughs> rejoicing together, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work indeed. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. Amen.